0: Well, this morning I want to talk about a rather difficult topic, and that's about uh, people that have never heard the gospel and what happens to them. Uh, Many evangelical scholars believe that the scriptures teach that those that have never heard the gospel will spend eternity separated from God. Uh, For many, even uh, Christians, there are many that say, That is, say to God, God, that is so unfair. How could you do that? There are non-believers that say, I I can't believe in a God who would do that, who would send people that haven't heard of his son to hell to be separated from God for eternity. So it's, it is a, a very important and yet difficult and sobering uh, topic. Um, related to it, I want to start with uh, one of my favorite passages from... The Chronicles of Narnia from the book The Silver Chair. And I think it it captures many of the, the tensions involved with this question. The woods were so still that it was not difficult to decide where the sound was coming from. It grew clearer every moment, and sooner than she expected, she came to an open glade and saw the stream, bright as glass, running across the turf, a stone's throw away from her. But although the sight of the water made her feel ten times thirstier than before, she didn't rush forward and drink. She stood as still as if she had been turned into stone, with her mouth wide open, and she had a very good reason. Just on this side of the stream lay the lion. It lay its head raised and its two forepaws out in front, like the lions in Trafalgar Square. She knew at once that it had seen her, For its eyes looked straight into hers for a moment, and then turned away, as if it knew her quite well. "'If I run away, it'll be after me in a moment,' thought Jill. "'And if I go on, I shall run straight into its mouth.' Anyway, she couldn't have moved if she had tried, and she couldn't take her eyes off it. How long this lasted, she could not be sure. It seemed like hours.' And the thirst became so bad that she almost felt she would not mind being eaten by the lion if only she could be sure of getting a mouthful of water first. If you're thirsty, you may drink. They were the first words she had heard since Scrub had spoken to her on the edge of the cliff. For a second she stared here and there, wondering who had spoken. Then the voice said again, If you are thirsty, come and drink. And, of course, she remembered what Scrub had said about the animals talking in that other world and realized that it was the lion speaking. Anyway, she had seen its lips move this time, and the voice was not like a man's. It was deeper, wilder, and stronger, a sort of heavy, golden voice. It did not make her feel any less frightened than she had been before, but it made her frightened in a rather different way. "'Are you not thirsty?' said the lion. I'm, "'I'm dying of thirst,' said Jill. "'Then drink,' said the lion. "'May I? Could could I? Would you mind going away while I do?' said Jill. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience.' The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will will you promise not to, to do anything to me if I do come, said Jill. I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had come a step nearer. Do you eat girls, she said. I have swallowed up girls and boys. Women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say it as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I dare not come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh, dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. It never occurred to Jill to disbelieve the lion. No one who had seen his stern face could do that. And her mind suddenly made itself up. It was the worst thing she ever had to do. But she went forward to the stream, knelt down and began scooping up water in her hand. It was the coldest, most refreshing water she had ever tasted. You didn't need to drink much of it, for it refreshed your thirst at once. Before she tasted, she had been intending to make a dash away from the lion the moment she had finished. Now she realized that this would be, on the whole, the most dangerous thing of all. She got up and stood there with her lips still wet from drinking. Come here, said the lion. And she had to. She was almost between its front paws now, looking straight into its face. But she couldn't stand that for long. She she dropped her eyes. Human child, said the lion. Where is the boy? He he fell over the cliff, said Jill, and added, Sir, she didn't know what else to call him, and it sounded cheeky to call him nothing. How did he come to do that, human child? He was trying to stop me from falling, sir. Why were you so near the edge, human child? I was showing off sir that is a very good answer human child do so no more and now here for the first time the lion's face became a little less stern the boy is safe i have blown him to narnia but your task will be harder because of what you have done please what task sir said jill the task for which i called you and him here You know, even this morning we sang a beautiful song about the lion and the lamb. And uh, often we prefer to talk and think about the, li- the lamb who was slain for our sins and uh, the gentleness of Christ and his love for us. Um, and often we neglect to give attention that Jesus is the lion of Judah. And there's a part of him that is fearful, for he has caused the rising and falling of many men and many kingdoms. And he is the king, and he does as he chooses. There's an aspect of him to be feared because he is so great. But interestingly, Sometimes we have the nerve to say to that king, to that lion, but you're unfair. And I think any time we say that, we we need to to rethink that. And that's what I hope uh, we'll do this morning as we look at this question. What about those that have never heard? Is it fair for God to send them to hell? It's a difficult question. The question that precedes it is this question, do all roads lead to heaven? If there's other ways, then it doesn't matter. Uh, but just a quick overview of the major religions helps us to see that all the major religions are very different, and they they can't all lead to heaven. In Islam, people are told that if they follow the five pillars, that if they're Faithful to those, perhaps God will allow them into heaven. They also believe that Jesus only appeared to die on the cross. That is as if he just fainted, but that he didn't die on the cross for people's sins. They believe that Muhammad, not Jesus, was the final prophet, and that Jesus was just one of the many prophets. And they also believe that they can't know for sure whether or not they are saved. Then we look at Hinduism. This idea that life, our current life, is determined by our past life. There's a cycle of reincarnation. If we live a good life, then we'll come back in a higher life form. But if we live a bad life, we could come back as a a rat or a dog. There is this belief in the one ultimate oneness of Brahman. But then there are millions of gods. And people are taught that if they dedicate themselves to certain ceremonies or to meditation or to one of these gods, that they can end this cycle of. Reincarnation and karma. Very different from Islam, also very different from Judaism, which teaches that Jesus was not the Messiah who would come and save them. That's total opposite of what we as Christians believe. Um, so to say all these all the religions are pretty much the same is is just to be uninformed. We could look as well at Buddhism that. It basically says there there is no God, that uh, Siddhartha Gautama merely was a model, was a person, uh, and he is a person that could teach us how to attain spiritual enlightenment. The goal is to blow out the candle of desire to attain nirvana, a state of total nothingness. Uh, Some have even shown that just the goal of Buddhism even, even is an inherent contradiction. That in Buddhism, one's greatest desire is to get rid, to rid oneself of all desire. Um, again, very different from these other religions. Some have called animism the one world religion, that even people that are Muslims or Buddhists often practice uh, many behaviors that an animist would, would, believing that there are evil spirits. And they try to appease these evil spirits in, in different ways. I remember being in Cairo, Egypt, my brother worked among Muslims, and everywhere we went we'd see this handprint on the wall, and that was to keep away the evil eye. So even though they had their belief system, there was another animistic belief system put on top of that, that there were evil spirits that, that they had to contend with on a daily basis. And then Christianity, which is different from all of these other religions in that It says it's not what you do that earns us favor and reconciliation with God. It's not what we do that allows God to let us enter into heaven, but it's by accepting what God has done for us in sending Jesus. So it's not do, but done. And in this way, it separates, Christianity is different from all these other religions. So to this question, people or people who say, oh, but all re- roads lead to heaven. Um, we can clearly show them that that's, that's maybe a nice thought, but uh, looking at it closely, we see that's just not the truth, that the major religions are very different, and Christianity different from all of them, in that it says our reconciliation with God is only occurs by us, accepting what God's done for us, not by what we do for him. Others say, well, yeah, but perhaps God will allow those into heaven who've sincerely believed, regardless of what they believe, that the, the, maybe the criteria is just sincerity. But as we look at the Scriptures, the Baal worshipers, they would offer their children and burn their children in the fire. And God in the Old Testament was so clear in condemning that as such evil. So though these worshipers showed intense sincerity, God said it was clearly wrong. And that was part of why the nations in the promised land, God told the Israelites to wipe them out because they were guilty of sins like this, burning their children as sacrifices. We'd also have to say, well, what about Hitler? He had this belief that The problem in their society was because of the Jews. And so the Jews needed to be wiped out for the world to have a better society. And clearly, he sincerely believed that. Killing six million Jews. When he stands before God in heaven, are we going to imagine that God says, well, Hitler, you were so sincere in your belief. Come on in heaven. Of course not. That's ridiculous. If someone sincerely believed that they could jump out of the 52nd floor of their office building and live, we would say they're sincerely wrong. And clearly, people can be sincerely wrong. So it's not an issue of sincerity. And all religions don't lead to, to heaven. The scriptures are, are, clearly teach that Jesus is the only way to God. If we look at several of these, Acts 4.12 Salvation is found in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. If you're trying to write make it more clear, I don't know how you could than that sentence. Also John 3:16 through 18 and verse 36 again make it so clear. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God didn't send his son into the world to condemn it, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because he's not believed in the name of the one and only in the name of God's one and only Son. Then verse thirty six makes it so clear Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life. For God's wrath remains on him. So God's wrath is on people. The only way to escape his wrath and to be reconciled to God is through Jesus. And the scriptures are very clear about this. Other ones include Romans ten, thirteen to fourteen that we read this morning, and this basic idea everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How can they call on them? It, and the one they have not believed in, well, so it's saying they have to believe. How are they going to believe? Well, they have to hear the gospel. How are they going to hear the gospel? Well, someone's going to preach it to them. And oh, how beautiful are the feet of those people that go and preach the good news to people. And then John fourteen six, Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And if we we look again here at John 3.16 in particular, we're so familiar with verse 16, but verse 17 and 18 are key as well. So it says, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever doesn't believe stands condemned already because he's not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. So it's this idea that we already, because of sin in our lives, stand condemned before God. And God came so that we wouldn't have to, we could escape from that condemnation. Many people think, oh, I'm in good standing with God. Christianity is just about finding a better way. No, no. All of us, because of sin, everyone in the world is separated from God because he's holy. He is that awesome lion that C.S. Lewis spoke of. He's holy. He's powerful. And the world operates according to his plan because he is the king. So because of sin, we all stand condemned before God. And so when God rescues us, it's His mercy. So for us to say, oh God, you're so unfair. No, God, we ought to say, God, you're so merciful. My sins, our sins made the world the way it is with all of its problems. But you loved us. You came to rescue us from that. Oh, God, you are so merciful. I think it's beautiful that in the Psalms we see David and other psalmists saying to God, accusing them of not hearing their prayers, of being asleep, of not caring. It's wonderful that God so much wants an intimate relationship. He, uh, he doesn't strike us dead when we say, God, it seems like you are unfair. But anytime we say that, we should think twice and say who it would be like that little girl jill up in front of the two paws of the lion saying you are unfair we need to be careful thank god he allows us to share whatever's on our heart he already knows what we're thinking and feeling and doubting about and he allows it but he is mighty and powerful So because of sin, we all stand condemned before God. And then the scriptures teach that everyone's without excuse for not knowing that God exists. And we see this in Romans 1, chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. The wrath of God's being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. And then he goes on to talk about how because we denied this, we didn't acknowledge that through creation that we see God's divine nature and His power, that our hearts were darkened and we we sinned. People gave themselves over to their own desires. But he says it there very clearly. God's divine nature, the fact that God is divine, that he is God and that he is powerful, those two things are plain to see. God said, I made it so plain for every person in the world through creation, through the trees around them, to the mountains, to the sky, to the stars to the fingerprints on their fingers, their bodies and its wonders, I have made it plain, so plain, obvious, that I exist and that I am powerful. So everyone is without excuse to say, there's no God. God is not knowable. In the Psalms, it talks about, I believe, Psalm 19, that, it says the skies proclaim the glory of God. Day after day they do it. It's so obvious. But because of our sins, our, our hearts get hardened and darkened and we miss it. We, we become hardened to where we can't see it. That's right, recently we were talking and it was interesting, uh, one of the youth was saying, yeah, I really experience God when I'm out in nature. And I, so this year I want to go out more. So that I can really experience him. Because I see his power there. So we have no excuse. And it's our sin that has caused the problem. Another thing we should consider is this question. What is the unpardonable sin? There's a passage in scripture that talks about this. And... Most evangelical theologians would, would say, well, basically the unpardonable sin in Scripture was never uh, receiving God's love. That It's the continually rejecting God's wooing of us to Himself. If any person does that, then they have committed the unpardonable sin. God, throughout our lives, pursues us. And if any person time after time, continues to reject that till the end of their life, then they've committed the unpardonable sin to reject God, to not acknowledge Him, to ignore Him. It's interesting, I realized uh, just within the last few years, I was thinking of this idea, and I was thinking my testimony, and I realized my testimony was that for the first 13 years of my life, I went to church every Sunday with my family, but I don't really remember hearing the gospel. But I just ignored God. I I never thought about God. We said prayer every night, and often they asked me to say it, and on our wall my mom had cross-stitched a prayer, and I would say that prayer, and it went like this. Send thy blessings from above. Bless our house with health and love. Amen. So every night, that was my prayer. And I could pray it pretty fast. Send the blessings from above. Bless our house with health and love. Amen. (laughs) And that reflected tragically my relationship with God. I just said these rote prayers, but God, the creator of the universe, had created me. And what was his purpose in creating me and creating you? That we could have an intimate relationship. He wanted to get pleasure from relating to us. And we would our relationship would allow him to express his character, his glory, his love, his sacrifice, his justice, his power, his holiness. But though God had created me and millions, billions of other people for that purpose, my life, I ignored him. And I began to realize, wow, my sin of ignoring God is related to that unpardonable sin. Now, I it wasn't the unpardonable sin because I eventually responded to God's wooing of me. After hearing a Billy Graham, seeing a movie by, uh, about a Billy Graham movie about a uh, father and his son that uh, had a bad relationship and then they reconciled, and Billy Graham came on the screen and preached the gospel, and I began to weep as he talked about our sinning against God and not. Responding to his constant wooing. And I came from a family that didn't weep, didn't hug. And I knew something was going on when I started weeping. I had no idea where that was coming from. And then I realized, wow, that is God's spirit working in me. And Lord, forgive me for that heinous sin, that terrible sin. Thirteen years of ignoring you. The God of all creation. And so realizing how heinous that is and that was um, caused me to, to love God so much that He's willing to forgive me of that. You know, we we have this concept that the punishment must fit the crime. And in our own human thinking, we say, wow, to be separated from God for eternity because you reject God or because you you haven't heard of Jesus, that just doesn't seem like the Punishment fits the crime. But when we realize, wow, rejecting the God of all creation, who through creation made himself obvious, he made it plain for all of us to see that he was God and that he's powerful, that is a heinous sin. The one most high God creates us, the potter creates the pot and the pot ignores it and says, I'll do my thing. Stealing a piece of bubblegum versus stealing all the money in a bank. We see a little difference there. But this idea of, wow, the sin of rejecting God, of denying his existence when he's made it so plain, and when he created us for his purpose, to be in relationship, to love us, that we could know Him and see His character and power and enjoy Him and glorify Him. So, in that regard, uh, Romans tells us, don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind. I think this is part of it, this idea that we think God's unfair, but we fail to, to see what an incredible offense it is to the creator God when we choose to ignore him. So to be separated from eternity fits the crime. It's a punishment that fits the crime. That is the worst thing a person could do to, because they're doing it to God himself who created them. And who loved them and his whole their whole life he's been pursuing them and yet they reject and ignore him. It is an incredible, incredibly heinous sin. It's the most heinous sin to ignore and reject God's love and sacrifice. So we've established here because of sin, all stand condemned before God. Everyone's without excuse for not knowing that God exists, and rejecting his love and salvation is the most heinous crime ever. But it's interesting, too, as we look at this issue. Uh, Jesus told a parable in Luke 12 about the master who goes away and how some of the servants aren't ready when he comes back, and some are. And he says this at the end. That servant who knows his master's will and does not get ready or does not do what his master wants will be beaten with many blows. But the one who does not know and does things deserving punishment, will be beaten with few blows. From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. But he says, one will be beaten with few blows. The one that didn't know the master's will, but did things deserving punishment. So those that may not have known much about God, but what they did know, They rejected, they sinned, they violated their own conscience. God said he's put his law on people's minds so that we're without excuse. That all have violated that and should realize their need for a savior. But apparently at the final judgment, and many scholars say that likely this original intent of this passage was talking about the religious leaders of that time who should have known God's purposes. And yet miss them, uh, that they would be beaten with many blows. But those that didn't know, but still sinned and violated uh, God's laws, would be punished nonetheless. And so it appears that at the judgment day, those that there there will be different levels of of punishment. So some that helps some to see uh, uh, this issue a little bit different. Then in Matthew 13, um, it says it a little bit um, differently about parables. And basically, we see that the pattern in Scripture is that those who seek the truth are given more. All right, and in the red, we see that. Whoever has will be given more, and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. This is why I speak in parables. So that God spoke in parables so that those that were seeking the truth would be given truth and given more. They would understand it. But those that weren't seeking after God, they wouldn't they wouldn't take the time to try to figure out the parable and what they had would be taken away. So God created these incredible incredibly memorable parables so that people wouldn't be able to forget them. They'd walk away after it was done after Jesus finished talking, and someone would ask him, "Oh, what did Jesus talk about?" and they'd be able to remember because he told, "Oh, he told these stories." Let me see. He told this story. Oh, well, what was the meaning of that? Well, I don't know, but I'm I'm thinking about it. And if they continued to think, then they would understand. That's why he spoke that way, so that true seekers would understand. But those that didn't care about knowing the truth, wouldn't. And that's a pattern we see throughout Scripture with Cornelius. God goes to great lengths because there's this Gentile who's a God-fearer and has adopted many of the Jewish practices and is loved by the Jews. God sees that and arranges a dream for Peter and a whole number of extreme circumstances, and they come and Peter declares the gospel to him. That through Jesus he can be saved, and Cornelius and his household and his friends all get saved. The Ethiopian eunuch who's looking at the scriptures, God arranges for one of the apostles to come and explain it to him. Talks about in Pentecost about devout men that were there, uh, Jews from all over the world, and when the disciples, apostles, started preach, speaking in tongues they began to hear the glories of God spoken in their own heart language. And they were from all over the world. And so they were hearing the good news, the wonders of what God had done. And they, God knew they would be taking it back to, to their country. But they were men seeking after God who'd come to Jerusalem to, to know more, to, to be devout in their worship. And God rewards that. And so we see that pattern throughout Scripture. And so we believe that those that do respond to the truth that they have, to to seeing God in creation, God sends a messenger, sends somebody, gives them more information. We saw that in China. There's a people group um, where there's just been so many uh, of them that have come to the Lord. And it all started by a guy walking down an alley and there was an old man his name now, this Christian name is Titus, old Chinese man. And he said to the guy, they brought a short-term team, and he said to the guy, why did you come? And uh, who, do you remember who it was that was? I can't remember the guy's name from our, our colleague that answered. He said, but when the guy asked that to me, I was so afraid because I thought, uh-oh, he knows we're a Christian group, and he's asking me why we're here. And he prayed, and he just said, felt God told him, Tell him the truth, and he said, "We came because God sent us here." And this old man broke out in this big smile and said, "I have been waiting for years for you to come." And they preached the gospel, and he believed, and he gathered the elders of that uh, in their village, and many of them believed, and they began having meetings every night hearing the gospel, and they uh, had a number of elders that were picked. And they were trained up and then every three nights a week they had prayer meetings and worship meetings and they've continued to grow. The gospel was spreading all throughout that people group. And it was because Titus was seeking the truth and God made sure that it got delivered. But how did that message get delivered? This is something that's really important for us all to wrestle with. Okay, We saw that in Romans 10. How can they hear the good news without someone preaching to them? So to be able to believe, you have to hear the gospel, and you can't hear it unless someone preaches it. And how can they preach unless somebody is sent? God's method for dispensing this good news is to use a human messenger. And we are humbled by this. We need to realize God has chosen not to show the gospel in a movie on the clouds, all around the world so that everyone can see it. No, He's chosen to make it available through us spreading it. That's why His final words were to go and make disciples of all the nations, of all the ethnic groups. He spoke that to His disciples, and it was meant for His disciples today. So we should ask, does God have an alternative method? And there's just no indication that he does. Some have brought up this idea of purgatory. The Catholic Church has this idea, and there's many different versions of it, but after you die, you go to this place called purgatory, and if you maybe had any remaining sins that you didn't confess before you died, you work them off, but others have said, no, in purgatory, those that haven't heard will get to hear the gospel. And Others that have heard will get another chance to hear it. They'll be given one final chance before the judgment. Now, there's nothing in Scripture that indicates this. And in fact, this is actually a a very dangerous idea. I remember somebody said it this way. They said, if you're telling me when, um, when people die, they go to purgatory, and God tells them the good news, presents them the good news, and they have a chance to respond to it. They said, here I am in China and I'm bumbling around with Mandarin and even worse in the minority language I'm trying to learn, trying to share the gospel with people so they can understand it. And now you're telling me when they die, they're going to get a chance to hear the gospel from God's own mouth? Man, he is going to do it so much better than me. I'm going home because I'm just going to screw it up. I'll probably get them off on the wrong path because if they're going to hear it from God, let's just let them wait until God can speak it to them how could they resist that? So it is a very dangerous idea, and it's just not in Scripture. God has chosen us to be the people that take the gospel to our neighbors, to our family, to our children. It's the responsibilities given us. He doesn't have an alternative method, and so we need to be very careful when we point our finger at God and say, God, you are so unfair. These people haven't heard and you're going to send them to hell? Well, why is it that they haven't heard? It's because we've failed to do the job God has given us. And actually, if, if a third of the world is Christian, if everybody led... Uh, all the Christians led two people to the Lord, by my math, that finished, this is the job. <laughs> uh, it's, it's not something totally unreasonable God's given us to do. It's doable. Uh, and I think for a while in my life, I, in my 20s and 30s, I sensed there was some real momentum gathering. But in the last decade, I've seen many becoming concerned that the American church and a number of churches around the world, some are really growing well and people are on fire with sharing the gospel. But in America, the rate of people sharing the good news with their neighbor is getting smaller and smaller. And it's something we need to be concerned about. That God chose us to be his messengers. And I, I, don't, I don't like the whole idea of making people feel guilty But as I've prayed about this, the thing that keeps coming back to me is if you're guilty, if the shoe fits, wear it. If we're guilty, then we should probably, that's why we feel guilty. I feel guilty. I haven't done all that I could do. I am frustrated. I think, boy, we just, I've tried to get to know our neighbors, but we just haven't even done that as well as I know God would have us to do. I haven't always been ready. We were debriefing on Friday night. I had the privilege to talk with the Thailand team. And we talked about this idea. Someone was saying, yeah, one of the highlights of the trip was every morning I'd get up and take time to get ready for the day, for God to strengthen me. There's this sense that I'm on mission in Thailand for God. God's got a purpose for me here. And I want to make sure I do this through God's strength. And we talked about how That's been one of my big frustrations is how come I can't translate that back to my life in America? That every day, why don't I wake up with that sense of God? I'm on mission for you today. I'm going out. There's got to be people out there that are hurting that you want me to minister to, to help an opportunity perhaps to share the good news with somebody or to pray for them or to help them or comfort them. Why is it that we just feel that sense of being on mission for God when we're beyond the borders of our country? God wants us to live every day like that because we are. It's our responsibility to get the word, the good news of salvation in Jesus, the new life, the transforming life that he has for us. It's our responsibility. Talking about purgatory, one person said it'd be like if there was a security guard on the 10th floor of an office to say there's a clearly marked exit door, a fire escape, but for that person to, to, in a time of a fire to speculate, well, yeah, there is that door, but I've always thought that door down by the kitchen, I don't know what's in there, but perhaps that's an escape as well. And if he led people in the office during the fire to that door, not knowing, just speculating that perhaps... There was an escape there. He would be condemned for those actions. And so should we to propose that there's, there's some other way. The Scriptures just haven't talked about it, hinted at it. It's just not there. But it's made very clear that we're to preach the gospel. I thought, too, about somebody once mentioned, well, what about, I've been hearing a lot of Muslims are coming to faith because they have dreams, and basically, they're saying, Isn't that a contradiction to what you're saying? No, they have dreams about Jesus, but they don't hear the whole gospel normally in those dreams. Then, they, when they wake up, they go and they have to find somebody. They, they go, and I've heard many missionaries say, This Muslim came up to me and said, Are you a Christian? They said, Yes, I had a dream about Jesus, but I don't understand him. Can you tell me about him? So, God still, it's like God so much wants people to hear. He's preparing them in every way, but he is going to use his method of using human people to be his messengers. And so he will he's allowed dreams like this because he wants those people to believe. And those that are seeking after him, he gives those dreams. But he's still using people. And lastly, the Scriptures, throughout the Scriptures, it, it just makes it clear. In Genesis, Abraham, when they're looking at the... hes pleading with God, oh God, if there's 50 righteous people, don't wipe out Sodom and Gomorrah. And I think it gets down to 10 at the end. And Abraham says, will not the God of all the earth do right? If God is God, he's going to do right. Hosea, whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. The ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. As high as the heavens are, higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than yours, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. The Bible proclaims God's ways are right and fair. And so anytime we accuse God of not being fair, we need to rethink that. Because all of scriptures proclaim that He is holy, 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 as we sang this morning. So his ways are right. His method is right. One last thing that's helped some is thinking about the way that life is. And by that I mean, we don't normally talk about this in terms of, oh, that's fair or not fair, but we just say that's how life is and I accept that. If there's a parent that are drug addicts, we would all admit there's a greater chance that their kids are going to be drug addicts. If the parent's have divorced, there's going to be a much greater chance that the parents or the children divorce. Okay? If the parents are alcoholics, there's a much greater chance that the children will be alcoholics. Is that fair? Not fair? I don't know. Is it the way that life is? I think we can all say, yeah, that that is the way life is. And if there are parents that are, are not Christians there's a great chance that their children won't be Christians. But it's possible. And for the ones that are alcoholics, it's possible their child cannot be an alcoholic. They, they have a free will, and they can choose in their circumstances where they won't be. And over on the other side, parents that don't get divorced, it's much less likely their children will get divorced. A couple that aren't alcoholics, it's much less likely that their children will be Alcoholics. Parents that train their children to be polite and to obey authority. It's much more likely their children are going to grow up. What if life wasn't? That's the way life is. What if it wasn't that way? And the actions as a parent, nothing that I teach my children influences them. What if life didn't work that way? It does. The things I teach my children and sit down with them and talk about they do influence their behavior. I'm so thankful for that. But can you imagine what a chaotic, senseless world would be if it wasn't like that? If what we taught our kids didn't make a difference? And so God blesses those that believe in him, but we all have a chance not to believe in him. And those that don't believe him, they have a chance to to believe in theirs people that for generations their parents and ancestors have been Muslims, but they have a dream, they come to faith, they hear the gospel. And if you took every person, you could go back far enough and you would find an ancestor that had the choice and heard the gospel and decided to say yes or no. And their decision influenced many generations. If they said yes to the gospel, that had such an influence on the following generations. If they said no that had such an influence. Is that fair or not? I don't know, but that's the way life is, and it makes sense. So, to call God unfair uh, just doesn't make sense. There was a woman missionary I heard about in the Philippines, uh, similar to what I talked about earlier, there, she, another missionary said, oh, I believe these people are all saved. I'm just here to pronounce to them their salvation, but they're already saved. And this woman was from Alabama or something, she was, uh, and she had her hair all dolled up and whatever, but being out in the humidity of the Philippines, at that moment her hair was just all laying down. And she said, she turned to that woman, she said, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. If these people are already saved, I'm going home back to my air conditioning and fix my hair. So it doesn't make sense. We are God's messengers. Also, some have said, oh, is it fair that any person hear the gospel a second time while there still remain those who've never heard it for the first time? And actually, it's, it's not fair that someone hasn't heard it for the first time and it's not fair somebody hasn't heard it a second time. We talked weeks ago about in America, many times people need to have 28, 29 touches with a Christian. So if they haven't had that mean that's not fair either. But it's not God's problem, it's, it's our problem. He's given us that responsibility. Someone said, uh, Robert McQuilkin said this, When all has been said that can be said on this issue, the greatest remaining mystery is not the character of God nor the destiny of lost people. The greatest mystery is why those who are charged with rescuing the lost have spent 2,000 years doing other things, good things perhaps, but have failed to send and be sent until all have heard the liberating word of life in Christ. And not just to send and be sent, but to reach out to our neighbors around us and our family and our friends because it's our responsibility. And it breaks God's heart because he's been active, wooing them to himself. Just practically, some things that we can do, one, I think we just all need to confess and repent. Ask God to forgive us that we haven't been more faithful. And to ask Him to help us, make us fisher of men and women. That's what He calls us to. A couple practical ideas. I just came upon this a couple weeks ago. Look up blesseveryhome.com. I, in fact, I have a, a map. I, I filled it out, I put in my address, and then it sent me all these red boxes are my neighbors, and when you click on the box, it tells you their name, and when you pray for them, you hit the pray button, and it records that you prayed for them, if you care for them in some way, it records that, and uh, then if you share with them, you can record that, but it's just encouraging people, I, the greatest thing for me was, wow, it's an easy way I can find out my neighbor's names, <laughs> but I can it, so I can pray for them, and when you start praying for your neighbors, I believe you'll... God's going to open up opportunities to care for them, to share with them. Um, so I encourage you. That's um, blesseveryhome.com. Really cool application. Um, also, another one, uh, Joshua Project. I've been getting this for years. Every day they send me the profile of an unreached people group. And I take a minute or so, and just they have the requests for that people, and I pray for them, groups that are still unreached that don't have a church uh, movement started among them. Also, I encourage people in a practical way, pray for one unreached people group worker in their people group each day. Both of them, the workers, so maybe that's um, Bob and Grace or Bo and Cindy, and then also praying for the people group that they are trying to reach. To do that, if every Christian in the world did that, we'd be making substantially more progress in world evangelization. Then lastly, Figure out what your role in world evangelization is. God wants you to be a welcome, or roles, a welcomer, a prayer, relational supporter, financial supporter, mobilizer, a goer. Find your role and get actively involved in it. Take a step to do that. Begin praying for your neighbors. And get equipped if you still feel um, you don't have good skills in evangelism. Find somebody that does and ask them to help you. Or to help you figure out, I really have a burden for my neighbor. Do you have some ideas how I might be able to influence them for the gospel? So let's pray. Father, we just ask your forgiveness for times when we've said that you've been unfair and for pointing our finger at you, Lord, unjustly. Because, Lord, you are so fair, and you are so compassionate. You have so much more love for the people of the world than we do. And it's wrong for us to say that you don't care or that you've been unfair. Instead, Lord, we ask that you'd forgive us, that we, for so many reasons, Lord, we have so many excuses, but none of them hold water. We ask that you'd forgive us for not sharing more generously the gospel, Forgive us for being stingy with it, for being overly worked up about, afraid we'd be of what others would think of us or afraid of failure or embarrassment or whatever it is, Lord. Lord, you gave us some simple responsibilities and we've failed them. Ask that, and we just plead for your help, Lord. Change us. We want to be children that when you look at us, you're pleased by our lives. And Lord, I know you want us to be children that are dependent upon you. And Lord, sharing the gospel with others, we need your help so much. So Lord, forgive us and help us, Lord. Thank you for the Holy Spirit. Help us to be more sensitive to your spirit and more responsive to when you're calling us to step out for you. We need you, Lord, and we love you. Thank you so much for your love for us and your concern for our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.